Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. You can also find every episode of the show for free whenever you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. I record all these introductions、uh, for my show on the back porch of our house in Albany, New York, which is enclosed and heated in normal circumstances. But apparently, a fuse has blown that I have yet to replace, and、uh, the heat's not on. So,、uh, in addition to I'm sure this being bad for the recording equipment that's back here, it's also freezing. <laughs> it's really. Really, really cold back here right now, and、uh, it just snowed last night for the first time in Albany, and it feels like it probably could snow in here on the back porch at any moment. So let me, with no further ado, introduce you to Dom Manassi, a、uh, fantastic guitar player who has been、uh, very prolific in the last several years、uh, with recordings,、uh, including the new one by the Dom Manassi String Quartet, which is called "Dissonance Makes the Heart Grow Fonder." This very band will be at Roulette this Thursday, December tenth, two thousand nine, at eight p.m.、Uh, definitely, definitely worth seeing. Fantastic band、uh, featuring Dom on guitar,、uh, Jason Kawang on violin, Thomas Ulrich on cello, and Ken Filiano on bass. It's part of the Interpretation series at Roulette, and、uh, you should absolutely be there. So that's this Thursday at eight p.m. at Roulette, which, by the way, is in New York City. In case you're wondering where that is, so if you're nowhere near New York City,、uh, unless you can afford to fly there, you might have to miss this one. But if you are anywhere near New York City, I would definitely recommend checking this gig out. So here they are. This is music from、uh, Dominasi's String Quartet. The album "Dissonance Makes the Heart Grow Fonder." This is the opening track called "The Pasadena Two Step." <laughs>
My guest is Dom Manassi, uh, Dom and his string quartet, which is one of about 37 bands uh, that Dom has at the moment, have just released an album called Dissonance Makes the Heart Grow Fonder. And uh, I'm here with Dom now. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. And, and even more, thank you for uh, inviting me into your home. I'm really uh, oh, happy you're welcome. to be here. It's nice to have you here. I, I want to start off, uh, I do want to talk about the music, but I want to talk even before that about the song titles, because I don't think people get enough credit for song titles, <laughs> and you've obviously got a particular uh, skill for it. Uh, talk a little bit about your song titles. Well, you know, what happened years and years and years ago in the 70s when I was recording for Blue Note, and uh, I was at Roger Kellaway's house. He was a big influence as far as writing. I, I knew I wanted to write after I saw Roger work. I said I went home and I started composing right after that. I mean, all the time, because he told me he composed every day. So I, I it was something I aspired to. But he wrote this tune, and then he says, "Well, we have to get a title." And he took out a book of titles. I said, "This was amazing, you know." And I and I love the idea of of thinking of titles and uh, and they don't always have to necessarily describe the music. But it, it's a great, it's a whole other thing. It's a whole, whole other art, I think, of uh, coming up with titles. You know? And not only don't they have to describe the music, but for example, in the case of the Pasadena two-step, right. it would be interesting to do a two-step in 3-4, right. <laughs> just for one example. <laughs> I, I mean, if you, in the liner notes I say, I have no idea what some of these things, they just just like pop into my head. So do you, you know? have your own uh, Kellaway-style book of titles now? That, uh, no, I just... It, I just uh, Sometimes I come up with the title first, or sometimes I write and play it, and then I say, "Okay, let's see what, what can we call this," you know, and it and it just it happens. So, do, so sometimes you do come up with the title first, and does that does that make the music a little more programmatic? Yes, it, it dictates what the mu- music will be. You know, like uh, this thing tumorology. I mean, uh, if you read the landlords when I, I went through with this tumor, and they still don't know what the name of it is, and thank God it was benign. So it just this popping along kind of thing that I, you know, and I get, and the doctor is so thrilled I, that I <laughs> dedicated it to, to him. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I came up with that title, you know. Let's talk about the string quartet. I know uh, that it, it had its origins in a much larger ensemble. Will you talk a little bit about the, the previous record? Right. Or, well, it's two records ago. Two records it's, ago, I'm sorry. It's The Vampire's Revenge was the biggest project I've ever Attempted. I had uh, 22 musicians, uh, not all playing at the same time. At, at the same time, we had like 12 and 15 musicians. I had a conductor. It was an idea I had years ago that was in uh, kind of like a gem in my back of my mind. I actually wrote the, the tune a, a whole bunch of years ago when I was playing with Dominic DeVille and uh, The Vampire's Revenge. And it's gone through many groups, and I always kept that tune. I always liked it. And... When we were deciding on what to record, what to do for the, the next project, um, 2005, we said, let's take a chance on this. Let's see. What we, and so it was a major undertaking. I mean, just trying to get all these musicians together and to, to get, get a rehearsal. And it was... Uh, so Tomas, the cellist, Tomas Ulrich, and I have been friends and playing together. We came, I met Tomas through Dominic Duval, and we had a, a string group called DDT. Dominic left the group, and I, at that time I was playing with Ken, and I brought Ken into the group, so it became a trio. Ken Filiano. You know, Ken Filiano, the bassist. And then um, I had met Jason years ago through another group called Mice. He came in to substitute, and I always 
always had in mind that I would have him on some kind of project. So with the Vampire's Revenge, I had the string group there and all these musicians. And so, uh, and Jason plays so greatly. I says, you know, this is uh, something I should think about in the future, this group. And of course, the Vampire's Revenge came out. Uh, and there was no way I was going to book this kind of music, <laughs> this kind of group, you know, 22 musicians with a conductor. So I started to write arrangements for smaller groups. And one of the things I did write was for a string group with uh, Jason, Tomas, Ken, and myself. And uh, we did perform once, and I liked it so much. I says, I have to do something with this. And so further on down the line, I had a chance to uh, Judy uh, at a place called the 5C Cafe. Mm. She, Trudy, she uh, heard me play with Jason's big group, Spontaneous River, and she asked me if I would come in with a, some kind of acoustic group because they were having problems with noise. I said, yeah, I have the perfect group. I told her about it. So she says, yeah. So I got the guys together again. We took out the old arrangements I wrote for The Vampire's Revenge. And we started off Halloween exactly a year ago. those arrangements and then she says well you know I'd like to have you here once a month I said well now I need music so I started writing and I was writing constantly so now I have like 35 pieces that I wrote for the group and I picked these seven things because I thought this this really shows off the group at its best in all areas the writing the the improvisation uh, the reading everything and it's uh, and it's such a great we have such a great time playing together. I mean, uh, usually we only have one rehearsal for a gig, and even if it's new music, it's one rehearsal, the guys read it and play it. And that's how, you know, that's how it came about. It was actually out of necessity, because I couldn't book The Vampire's Revenge. What, what is it about uh, the string quartet that you enjoy writing for? What does it allow you to do? Well, you know, uh, the last five or six years I've been into a lot of classical writing, 21st century writing, and I've written a lot of string quartets. So what this allows me to do is become part of that string quartet by substituting guitar for viola and bringing in the, the cello. So now instead of having two violins, there's violin, guitar, cello, and bass. And, and it, it gives me a wide range of things to do because I, I can bring in the jazz influences with, you know, the swing if I needed to do. I can even bring in, like, some of the things have this poppy rock kind of thing. You know, and Ken can play anything. I mean, you should hear Ken play rock and roll on, on an acoustic bass. I mean, so, and I have all this talent available, so why not bring it in? You know, I have years of experience playing all kinds of music, so I'm trying to bring in everything. And one of the things I did with this group is instead of playing my normal acoustic uh jazz box, you know, an electric jazz box, I uh, I switched to nylon string guitar, and I, I got myself a Groden electric, so I wouldn't get feedback, because I had a regular classical guitar, nylon string, and I, I couldn't deal with it, because I was getting a lot of feedback, 
So I found out about Feedback this from, from the way it had to be mic'd? Or? Yeah, okay. uh, from an amplifier. Oh, you know, right, okay. Because, uh, you know, you're playing with cello, <laughs> myelin, <laughs> and acoustic uh, contrabass, and these are loud instruments. There's no way you're going to hear an acoustic nylon string guitar. Sure. So I needed to be amplified. And uh, I just couldn't get a sound. I was having lots of problems. So finally, I got this guitar, and the problem was solved. And uh, and it has that nylon string sound that I want, that classical sound. And I play the guitar, guitar strictly with my thumb. I don't use a pick. Like a lot of a lot of the jazz guys, when they play nylon string, they use a pick, you know, for the single notes. Sure. I, I do a, a la West Montgomery. With my thumb, uh, chords, I use my fingers, you know. And, but everything's with my thumb, and I've developed enough technique where I can play fast, and I can read on it, and uh, and it's just a, it's a, it's another instrument. That's actually what it, what it is, and it's, uh, and I think it really adds to the to the group, to the group sound, the string quartet sound that I want. Did you? Uh... Did you already kind of have your chops together on the nylon string guitar when you started bringing it into this band, or was it a chance for you to try something? Uh, I st- I started working on uh, nylon string guitar about two years ago, and I knew that I could never be a classical player the way classical players have the, that kind of technique uh, in the right hand. It's just I didn't have that kind of time. Right. Uh, but I could play with my thumb, and so I just needed to develop the thumb technique to get the kind of speed I needed and uh, and it just developed into that whole it became a whole and the thing I like about using my thumb is uh, because I have a lot of chops I don't know if you've heard my other records sure, I have yeah. t- tons of speed this kind of slows me down a little <laughs> bit because I don't have that kind of speed with my thumb and so I have a chance to really breathe and play long lines but very distinctive and uh, and it works better for this particular group Instead of playing like this wall of sound, because I can create a wall of sound that'll go on, you know, for 10 minutes, nonstop. You know, all you'll hear is these notes coming at you. This is a whole different thing. And it, and it works for the group. And it's, uh, and these guys, the guys I play with, you know, they come in and they listen. And that's the whole point of the group. If you, if you have musicians who are listening to each other, that's how you develop a group sound. Because all my records, are not about me. They're about the music. It's about developing a sound. I may have a lot of groups, but each one of them has a distinctive sound. And it sounds like, you know, that group. So there's a point. Each of those groups is allowing you to do a particular thing, either compositionally or sonically. Yes, definitely. So it sounds like there's two... uh, The book for this band has come from two places. One is the kind of condensed scores of the much larger project from Vampire's Revenge. Right. And then music written originally... For this four piece yes. group, is there a is there a difference in those in the way those pieces uh, sound or the things that you approached kind of from scratch for this band? You know, could anyone tell if no. if they just heard? No, no, no. I could uh, mix it up, and play a piece from Vampire's Revenge, and play a new piece. You know, the group has a distinctive sound now, so you can't separate. Well, this is that group. No, it's, we have our own sound now, and well, and. Playing in this place, 5C, every month for uh, six, seven months and rehearsing, you know, the thing is, it's when you have a group, if you play together all the time, like my trio, we've been together seven years now, eight years. We have a distinctive sound. And we can not play together for six months, seven months, and just get together and do a gig 
and it's still there because we understand how to play together. And it's really important. you more about that because uh, musicians in particular always use the word sound and that word I mean it has a thousand layers of meaning inside it and it sounds to me when you're using it like it doesn't it doesn't just mean sound but it means the interaction it means the the group dynamic it means the collaboration it sounds like everything's built into that it's everything that's what I I mean it's it is everything you know uh, it's not a bunch of freelance musicians getting together, jamming, maybe they don't play together six, seven months, eight months down the road and just jam, you know, it's not that. And uh, I mean, even though I'm known as a freeform player, I do believe in uh, a form of structure. And I think that's what makes the our group, the freeform playing, uh, sound more coherent because there is structure going on. And uh and I think that's important. And just to go off on a tangent and play anything you want and not listening to what everybody else is doing doesn't sound like music. Eventually it sounds like noise. And I'm not into that. I'm into music. I'm into playing notes. I'm not a noisemaker. I'm not into electronics. I'm not into any of that. I like to play notes. I may like to play a lot of notes, but they're still notes, you know? And I like to make music. I want to... Uh... I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, you, you've got a lot in your background that allowed you to get to this place, both with the larger Vampire's Revenge and with this group. And one per- person in particular I wanted to ask you about was John Corigliano um, and and what effect studying with him has had on the writing you're doing for these string groups and the and both large and small. Well, you know, I was writing this way before I studied with John. Sure. I started writing uh, after um, after Roger Calloway. I just started writing tunes and then I started to get into modern writing. And then when I went back to school, I went back to school when I was 48 years old, you know, and uh, I was fortunate enough to study with John. And uh, the thing that impressed me uh, is he wrote the score for Altered States, mm-hmm. which is an amazing score. I mean, um, they sound like the electronic instruments, but they were all acoustic. Something, seeing that score and listening to that music, something went pop. It's the same like the same thing with Roger. Something went pop. You know, something goes like, mm, you know, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, and this is what I have to do to get there. And uh, and since working with him, I've I found myself in another place now. In the last four or five years, I, I used to compose first. I started use I used to use the guitar to compose melodies and. Then uh, when I when I start to compose with John and other teachers, 
using the piano. Now I don't use anything. Now I do it all in my head. The whole Vampire's Revenge record was done in my head. I wrote everything in my head. And uh, everything everything in for the string group, everything was done in my head. You know, I, I hear it and I write it down. And of course, now with the new kinds of systems they have, you write it down and you can play it back immediately and see if you like it or if you don't like it. And most of the, most of the time, I would say 98% of the time, what I write is exactly what I want. And so it's a whole new experience, you know, to, to actually hear the colors in your head and then write it down and and have it come to fruition. You know, so this is what I do now. Someone I was just talking to, and if I had a better memory, I'd know who it was, as it was a guitarist, too, and it was very recently for the show. But anyway, said a very similar thing and actually said that moving away from the guitar for composition took out some of the the kind of inherent, like, finger-based writing. You're probably talking about Joe. Maybe it was Joe oh, yeah. who said that. Because yeah. I just listened to that interview. That's probably what it was. Well, thank you. I'm glad one of us knows what I'm doing on my show. Yeah, Joe Morris, I think it was. Um, but, you know, kind of moving away from the compositions that are in your hands and just to what's in your mind. Oh, yeah. You have to get away from your instrument. Even uh, as an instrumentalist, I think you have to get away from your instrument. You have to go beyond the instrument in order to let things happen and move along and to grow. If you stay in this box, I'm a guitar player, you're limiting yourself. But if you think of yourself as a composer, musician, even though you've never composed a piece of music, but you do improvise, it's a whole different ballgame. Since we just brought up Joe, another thing that reminds me of that I want to ask you about, he mentioned that very early on he made the decision to play without effects, to play a very clean-toned sound, and that he kind of thinks guitar and effects is almost a different instrument. It's like... A hybrid. I wonder what your opinion well, is. Well, um, I played without... I didn't use reverb until about 10 years ago. But that's the only thing I use. Uh, I don't use uh, anything else, any, any kind of electronics. Some people think that's effects, but that's not effects to me. Uh, effects are these weird sounding things and all that, you know. So I use the reverb just to punch out, to get it out there more. And that's about it. That's all I use, you know. And um, as far as effects... I use the instrument. I make my own sound effects from the instrument itself. So, in other words, things that happen on the body or other sounds you can get out of the strings besides just tone, right. the, the normal notes. Right, but I'm not using a, a gadget to do it. Sure. the way you play and the style of music you play as a guitar player. It seems like there's far fewer guitar players doing what you do than in almost any other instrument I can think of. I know. Um, it was a long trip. You know, um, I'm actually playing, not that I'm always satisfied, but I'm 
finally playing the way I always wanted to play. And uh, maybe because it's my age and I don't care anymore. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> I always had that thing over my head, like, you know, you have to make a living, which I did. I still do. But uh, when I was younger, it was... Uh, I uh, When I was younger, I started playing jazz when I was 14, 15 years old. And uh, my biggest influences then were with every guitar player you could think of. Johnny Smith, uh, Jim Hall, Wes Montgomery, Kenny Burrell, you name them, Tal Follow. I was into them, and I could copy and play those styles. By the time I was 17, 18 years old, I could play like them. I could play those styles, and you could... And I had a friend of mine, we would play together, and he would say, you sound like Johnny Smith today. And then another guy would say, then I'd play another gig, and he says, well, you sound like Kenny Burrell today, you know? Because I I was so influenced by them, and I studied with Sal Salvador on top of that, so I could play like Sal if I needed to. And I always had a lot of technique, you know? And I... uh, and I used to hang out at Birdland when I was 14 years old because they had a, a children's gallery, a peanut gallery. So kids, 14, 15 years old, could go sit in the back and listen to the greatest players in the world. So I, I heard Miles Davis with John Coltrane, and I, you, you named the group. I saw them, uh, the Jazz Messengers with uh, Wayne Shorter. And these guys, you know, they were creating incredible music. So it was, it was more than what Johnny Smith was playing and with Talfall, it was like a whole other ball. And it always stuck with me. You know, and uh, when I became a full-time musician, when I actually made my living as a musician, I was 18, 19 years old, when I started to play, I played all, I worked all the time, but they would come up to me, the leaders, and say, you know, you play too far out for these kind of things. You have to, I had to relearn how to play melodically and in, you know, on the beat. You know, I was so influenced by that other way, you know, and it always bothered me that I had to change, constantly change in order to work. And and uh, and even when I was playing a uh, record of a blue note, I was playing very straight ahead. Uh, but I was still leaning towards the out thing. My second album, I wanted to go out, and they wanted me more inside. So I wasn't happy about that. So, uh, so I kind of like walked away from all of it. And I just taught, I wrote. Uh, I did a lot of writing for Off-Broadway. I wrote books. I had private students. Uh, I, I did gigs. I did a lot of demo work, you know, and uh, and then I... But I always had that out thing happening underneath. And a, lot, a few guys knew I could do that. And uh, so finally, Jay Rosen and Dominic Duval started to push me. got to get back into it. I said, no, I don't want to be bothering you people. Oh, you got to do it. So they brought me to Simp, and I did a record for Simp. And I, then I was hooked. But a lot of people don't know, there was a time in the 80s where I kind of like sheltered myself and and put the time into getting my chops exactly where I needed them to be to play this wall of sound that I heard. You know, very few guys can do that on guitar. It's like this constant rumble. Of, you know, it's like... And it takes a lot of work, a lot of energy, and... Um, and if you ever saw me play, I'm like soaking wet. I mean, I worked really hard. And, uh, it, uh, but I wanted to get that. So I had to, like, like Sonny Rollins went under, stayed under the Brooklyn Bridge or right. Williamsburg Bridge. And I did that in my apartment. That's what I did. I, like, closed myself off to everything and just worked on, not so my solos would always be the same, but I had to get into that kind of energy thing going. And I couldn't have any kind of outside influences. So now I learned where I can do this. I can do this on tunes. I can do it playing free. 
you know, I can do it with a group. I can do all kinds of things and, and still use that. And then I can still turn around and play straight ahead. What, what, was the, what was the end that you saw when you were in your room just woodshedding? I mean, what, what did you trio think you that, My trio, the trio that I have with Jackson and Ken. That was like, when I finally put that trio together, I said, this is the trio I always wanted. You know, and it, it's, it's, I can't tell you the joy I have, no matter, because we have like all the, all the arrangements from uh, Taking the Duke Out, and then I wrote some new arrangements for the Ottawa Jazz Festival because they wanted more Duke Ellington. And I have all kinds of, one night I, at the Nitty Factory. We should mention, I, just for people who haven't heard, that it's called Taking the Duke Out, and right. the emphasis yeah. is on out. So on out. People Definitely who haven't out. heard the records need to know <laughs> yes. what we're talking about here. And, uh, I, one night at the Knitting Factory, I did a whole night of waltzes, but you wouldn't have been able to tell with that group, you know? And uh, so I get into this thing, and sometimes I'll just play tunes, but I take them totally out, you know? And uh, But we follow the form, and people don't know that, and they don't know where, where it is. And, you know, like I, on, a, on a record called Going Out Again, I do... Uh, Green Dolphin Street, and everybody says, oh, that's not Green Dolphin Street. I can't even because I'm playing in 7 4 and in 4 4, and we follow the form. So, you, you know, <laughs> and the temple is like burning, you know. So, uh, so we do things like that. And then sometimes, like when I was in uh, Mexico last uh, in August, uh, it wasn't with my group, I was invited down to play, and it was the first time I, I ever did where I got up on a bandstand and played for an hour and 10 minutes totally free you know and I the way Cecil does it but Cecil does it for two hours you know I haven't gotten to that point <laughs> yet <laughs> uh, and uh, you know and now I'm starting to do that with my group you know in, in improvised music in this whole improvised music downtown scene sometimes they look at you when you do tunes like you're, like you're doing something wrong you know and then uh, then you play other places and like they want to hear tunes like, my wife wants to hear me play a tune and then take it out, you know? Whereas I, if I go into a place downtown and I play free, that's what they want to hear. So I'm able to cover it all. But but the string group is a whole... It's another group. It's it's not a, a downtown kind of group. It's, it really belongs in the classical... You know, doing classical concerts and museums. And, and we actually have our first major gig in December. And where is that? Tell it's at Roulette in Interpretation series uh december 10th you know and i'm really excited it's a very it's a major gig for us you know will you talk about the divisions of composition and improvisation uh, on this new record and how it might even be difficult i know it's hard for me to figure out uh sometimes where the collective composition is going on and where the where I the know. That, intentional that, that, composition that was is the going. point yeah. that's, that's that was the point is the point was that because it's through composed with lots of room for improvisation. And when I did The Vampire's Revenge, I had a conductor because I, there was no way that I can get 15 musicians to look at me and I, and me play my parts. But with this group, uh, because it's smaller, and we had a kind of hand signals and stares and look, and we were kind of like playing a circle, so it was easier. So that was basically it. There'd be a talk through, you know, we... The way our rehearsals ran is we would uh, go through the music first, the, the written parts. I says, okay, okay, then we're going to improvise and blah, blah, we'll talk it through. And then and we, then we just go and do it and let it happen. But I always try to get the conducting happening where 
it would go right into the improvisation, right from the reading, so you couldn't really tell. And if you follow the form of, of the song, the way the song was going, and if you improvise kind of like that, you can't really tell. Sure, yeah. You know? Another thing I really I really dig about this record is it it covers so many bases, despite the fact that it's the same four people the whole way through. You guys are uh, you guys have a really wide palette and that you're drawing from. Um, one of the bits that I particularly like uh, is I think it's called the Dark Side, right. which I know is one of the condensed scores from Vampire's Revenge. But every time I hear that tune, before I knew it was from Vampire's Revenge. The first time I heard it, I, I really expected about midway through to hear the, you know, I was having a drink of whiskey and cleaning <laughs> my gun with the door open, and there she was. I mean, it's really that kind of – it evokes a real film noir sense. Yes. Um, so it seems like you really can – you can make programmatic music even inside all the freedom that you allow this. Yeah. I, I really uh, – a lot of my, my friends think I should be writing for film because uh, I'm very much into film writing. And I've never written for film. I've written for uh, – off Broadway, so and uh, which is almost like film. I was going to say, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, I love the movies, but uh, sometimes this is just the way I hear things, you know. And uh, the but the thing is, with the Vampire's Revenge, I created this whole storyline to go with it. So I was writing with the storyline, you know. Uh, I created the titles, I created the story, the titles, then the music, and it, with this thing. Uh, Things just happened, you know. I knew I had to write for the group, and I started writing. Uh, a couple of things were were written for uh, DTT that I uh, rewrote for this group and, and changed. And um, Pasadena Two Step was uh, written for DDT, so I expanded on it because now that I had violin, you know, once you had that other instrument, that that one instrument made so such a big difference, you know. It's, I just can't tell you how rewarding it is to play with these guys and how much I love playing with them and how, how much they contri- contribute to the musicality of the group. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. You mentioned a few minutes uh, earlier that your trio is in many ways kind of the, the culmination of all the things that you've been working toward. Can you talk a little bit about when you knew that, when you realized that was the case? After the first rehearsal. 
Well, when I had this idea, after I recorded for Simp, and uh, I decided I was going to come back into it, and uh, I had a gig at the knitting factory lined up, and my wife, Carol, says, well, why don't you do a Duke Ellington record, because I used to get fired all the time, or the guys who played with Duke, I played with them, and I would start to go a little on the outside, and they would yell at me, you can't do that stuff, you know? So, uh... So I was going to actually record it for the uh, Knitting Factory label. Uh, but then somebody suggested, why don't you start your own label? You know, and do it that way. I said, okay, so uh, let me put a group together first and see what happens. So I wrote an arrangement for uh, Satin Doll, the one that's on the record. And I called Ken and Jackson. Jackson, I wanted to play with for the longest time. Ken and I were playing together for a long time already. But uh, they came over. I said, this is what I want. I want to follow the form, but I don't want it to sound like we're following the form. I want it to be in time, but I don't want it to sound like it's in time. (laughs) (laughs) And and I said, this is the arrangement. And I I took... uh, uh, Sat and doll, and I created this whole whole tone uh, approach to it, and uh, and it worked. And I said, "Okay, guys, I'll I'll give you a call in about three months. Let me work on the rest of the music." And that's how it happened. So we got together three times before the knitting factory, and we decided we would record live at the knitting factory. And uh, and you have to understand, before all of this, every time I played any place playing freeform music. Three people would show up, four people would show up. It was like a dis, it was very disheartening. But the knitting factory, the place was packed. And we, and we, the order of the tunes, the way they are on the CD, is exactly how we did it. And uh, nothing was changed. Not one note, nothing. Uh, and we did it live. And uh, I was really, really happy. <laughs> you know? and, but I really thought that was going to be the end of my recording career because of you know of it and it turned out it actually launched it you know and uh after that i guess you could say it's history but the thing is when i was a blue note only a few people knew who i was with this record it opened up the whole world to me you know and uh i've been going ever since does having the the ellington at the root does that make the uh all of the free improvisation more palatable to listeners or more kind of easily accessed or understood? It's, it's, it makes it easier for the listener so they can, uh, you know, they have something to latch on. Like, my wife is a perfect example. I mean, I, I, call, I call our marriage, she's the tonal, I'm the atonal. I mean, she really wants, she really wants to hear a melody and then do whatever I want, but then go back to the melody. Um, I like to do that sometimes. Sometimes I don't, you know, but uh, I can understand what she's doing. And there are a lot of people out there who want to hear it that way. So I thought, you know, she was right to do a, a Duke Ellington record. And that, like, really grabbed the people, you know. And then uh, on my second record, I did a couple of standards, and then I just did all uh, original music. But uh, melodies would uh, free form involved in it. But uh, now I'm at the point of... Uh, when I go to gig, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I just say, okay, let's see what happens, you know? It seems, uh, I know you didn't have a good experience with Blue Note, and you spent about 20 years between the last Blue Note recording and the and the Simp 
recording and then your own. Um, can you talk about having kind of complete creative control over your own projects? And what it's that's the like? best way. <laughs> <laughs> no one tells you how to record. After Blue Note, I, uh, Mercury Records was interested in me. I was about to record and I had to produce everything. Then they changed producers last minute and this producer said, well, I want you to play like this, like this, like that. And I basically said goodbye. That was it. And I was really, I said, I can't deal with any of this, you know. With Blue Note, they wanted me to record like this moving music and all this. I said, I, I'm not that kind of player, you know. But I did it anyway and it was, you know. So, uh, so I just didn't want to deal with this kind of thing. I wanted total control of what I do, what kind of music I write, what kind of music I play, you know, how it's marketed. And so it's a whole much better experience. You know? You've been uh, you've been so committed to education uh, throughout your entire career. You've written books uh, and taught a gazillion classes and been in schools. Uh, and I, I know that one of the programs um, that you offer deals with taking music out. Yes. And uh, can you talk a little bit about how kids react? Well, they're not kids. That that, that particular one is for, uh, you know, students who are learning how to improvise, who improvise already uh, for for, uh, intermediate, advanced, and professionals. And I talk about the art of taking it out, and I bring the arrangement of Satin Doll with me, and I give handouts, and there are explanations for every little thing. People think I just do this stuff. I don't. This is, some of this stuff is very well thought out. Not that my solos are thought out, it's the thinking behind it, because all my thinking comes from a, a harmonic place. I think about chord changes, like some people just like to play free and that's it, which is okay. I like to do that too, but all my playing comes from harmony first, and I, I, I'm a big believer in harmony, uh, but I like harmony to be expanded, and that's what I do with that particular tune. I take one chord, I change it to another, then it becomes all these chords. And all of a sudden, you look at the first measure, and it's 40 chords. And you have all of this stuff open to you, you know? So that's how I, what I teach. And then I also explain to them that in order to do what I do, you have to have a lot of chops. You have to have a lot of technique. Because if you listen to any of the great plays like Coltrane, Eric Dolphy, they had immense technique. Because they were playing very difficult things, you know, they were just running scales. I don't. I'm not a scale player. I'm an interval player. So that makes it even harder to do. So you have to have the technique to do that. And so it takes time. Everything takes time. Which really goes against that whole, 
you know, knock on free playing that it's done by people who couldn't play any other way, which is obviously was always bogus. But <laughs> well, there <laughs> are there, there are people out there who really can't play. I'm a big, I have a big mouth about this because I've seen things that I, I and sometimes I, you know, just the whole my wife has to hold me down because I'm ready to kill. It's a, this guy can't play. You know, years ago when I was a kid, we were playing like confraternity dances and stuff. And that time, the pop music was early rock and roll, and all the guitar players were doing it, including me. But the the thing was, yeah, but can he really play? <laughs> and they still do that with the free free guys, you know. Uh, but a lot of the people I know that are involved in the freeform music are educated musicians, and they can play anything. Ken can play with a symphony orchestra. He can compose. He, he can play any kind of music. Uh, same thing with uh, uh, Tomas. Tomas to me is like one of the greatest cellists of all time. I mean, he can make you cry the way he plays. It's so wonderful. Uh, and Jason, Jason's a great composer besides such a wonderful player. I mean, uh, so th this is not, you know, the people I play with and hang around with are not limited to just freeform music. All the musicians on my wife's records, they're all freeform players who, who always played straight ahead, you know? And I think it's an advantage to be able to do both. Yeah, can you talk more about that? What, what, what does each bring to the other? Well, the way I feel about it is playing freeform music sometimes is very dark for me. I'm like, you know, like, there's a darkness about me. And, and if you're playing this all the time, you need a break. And for me, my break is playing straight ahead. I don't practice freeform music at all. I practice tunes constantly because I love tunes and I love harmony. And I this is it just keeps my head together, you know. And sometimes I'll I'll just play. My wife will come and she says, "I can't believe that's you playing," because I just feel like playing something pretty, you know. It's part of my background. I grew up with all of this. I grew up listening to beautiful music, you know. And uh, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, Jackson once told me, Jackson Crowell told me, you know, he plays with Cecil. He walked in once on Cecil playing, like a tune. He couldn't believe it, you know. But he does it. Everybody does it, you know. The guys who really play can do it. When, uh, when I asked you earlier about the, uh, the uh, taking music out curriculum, I, I had kind of an agenda, which is that it, it's my opinion that people start out being completely open to improvisation and are taught not to be and then have to relearn in many cases to kind of to be open again to to more freedom well, you're I mean, talking a kid about sits the down at a piano yeah you know when a little kid sits down at a piano right. i mean they just play what sounds cool it could be little clusters of notes they can bang on the keys they can try and pick out a melody the whole the whole world of music is open to them and it seems like it narrows and then has to be kind of broken open i don't think that's universally true but well i think a lot of it has to do with the, the educational system musical educational system i mean if you go to uh, all these music colleges and, and uh, people uh, studying jazz they're all learning the same thing and then you wonder why they all sound the same because <laughs> they're learning the same thing um, i uh i have a, a a student who's like an ear player he's a natural player but he wants to get into a music school and i have to teach him modes it's it really it's breaking my heart because he has to learn how to do this you know because it's going to take away from his natural ability but he's going in order to get into school he's going to have to do that 
you know, and I don't think it's right, you know. And uh, when somebody says, well, this is how jazz has to be played, I don't, I'm not into that at all. I mean, it's a whole different thing, you know. And then there's also the opinions of uh, what is jazz and how do you play jazz. And my whole attitude about that is if you're coming from a historical point of view, which I think I do come from, then I'm playing jazz no matter what it is. If it's uh, atonal, if it's dissonant, I'm still coming from that place. And I still listen to Monk when I was younger, and you're going to hear Monk, some of Monk in my playing and some of my writing and my chord changes. You're going to hear some of that. I'm very much influenced more so by Monk, Eric Dalvey, uh, John Coltrane, uh, Schoenberg, people like that. Then you'll hear from like Johnny Smith or Tal Fall, because I let go of that when I was 18 years old. It was time to let that go. I mean, it got, got me to a certain point. And then I said, okay, now, in order for me to get here, I have to do this. I have to let this go and go here. You know, you um, you were talking earlier about uh, sitting in Birdland, you know, in the peanut gallery and seeing all these great bands. You mentioned a few, um, and you could mention many more, and none of them had a guitar player. I mean, very few of those bands had a guitar player. No. <laughs> no, but I did see Johnny Smith there. I you Original, the reason why I went there was the first time was because I was 14 and a half, was to see Johnny Smith. Because I, 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 when I went to high school, I played with the swing band. And, and the swing band was the dance band, the jazz band, and all these guys were into jazz. And the first, so much so that we would rehearse outside of school, besides in school. So the first rehearsal outside of school, I went to the drummer's house. His name was Mike Simonetti. I got there early, and he says, Do you ever hear this guy playing? He put on a Johnny Smith record. So I, I never heard guitar played like that, you know? And um, I knew about jazz, but I didn't really didn't know that much about jazz. My guitar teacher would improvise, and he said it was jazz, and he said it, it came from your heart. I had no idea what that meant. So uh, when I saw that Johnny Smith was playing at Berlin, I begged my father to take me there. So we we went there one night, and I sat right in front, and I watched him play, and I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I says, And I knew right then and there, I was 14 and a half, this is what I was going to do the rest of my life. You know, this is what I want to do, you know. Uh, so uh, then I found out about the peanut gallery in the back. So I would tell my parents I was going to movies, and I'd be in the city hanging out, drinking Coca-Cola, and listening to the greatest music in the world, you know. And from there, I saw Monk. I saw everybody. Uh, Monk at the five spot. I saw Kenny Burrell at the five spot. Uh, uh, Jimmy Rain. It was, it was amazing. But uh, the only guitar players I saw live were Kenny Burrell, uh, Jimmy Rainey and Johnny Smith. I never saw West live, which I'm really sad about. I wish that would have happened. Mm. But uh, it is what it is, you know. But uh, I listened to all those records. I had every Johnny Smith record ever at one point, and uh, I gave them to one of my students once, and he disappeared. I never saw the records again. <laughs> but uh, Johnny Smith was a very big influence on me to the point, not he was a scale player, but the, the fact of the way he used the neck. That was very important to me, to be able to do that, to like go up and down the neck, but not to play scales. He played scales and arpeggios, but to really play intervals and make music using the whole neck. It was like, it was something I always aspired to, you know, and it takes some, the things I aspired to have taken me my whole life to get to. Well, it's, <laughs> I guess it's nice that, you've, that you're getting there. I yeah, mean, I'm still uh, getting it. I'm still working on it. Let me tell you, I, uh, I don't practice every day the way I used to, but I still practice and I still aspire to go to different places. Can you talk a little bit about what 
being up here. We're uh, an hour and a half or so north of New York and uh, surrounded by trees, and it's it's really gorgeous. What what does this do for you? It I compose. I do my best composing up here. I've I wrote a lot of music for the string group up here, for vampires up here. I have so much music that I've written over the last uh, fifteen years. I mean, uh, I have over five six hundred copyrights. I mean. But up here, the last, uh, I guess we're here since 2002. It's just a place where sometimes the city can get to you. It's like, uh, up here, just it take, we sleep for three days straight as soon as we get up here. It's just like everything just has to, you know? And it's very, very loose. Some great players up here, Joe McPhee, Joe Girardulo, you know, more friends of mine I've played with. Carl is here, Carl Berger. So it's... Uh, it's a good place. Oh, that's great. It's energizing. My guest is Don Manassi. Uh, he and his string quartet have a new record called Dissonance Makes the Heart Grow Fonder. And uh, I'll be honest, I could talk to you for about the next six or seven days here, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'd have to do 15 shows. But thank you so much for inviting me oh, here. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure for me. I've, I've been enjoying your, your podcast immensely. There you go, folks. The Manassi <laughs> seal of approval. If you had any doubts, go download <laughs> Well, thanks again, Dom. It's really been a great talk. Thank you. Thank you. Dom Manassi and the Dom Manassi String Quartet from their album Dissonance Makes the Heart Grow Fonder. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. 
Every episode is also archived for free whenever you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I've now grouped the archives in addition to just being able to, you know, see the names of every artist. I've also grouped them into instrument categories. So if you want to see all the interviews with bassists, for example, along the left-hand side of the uh, thejazzsession.com page, you'll see the, the categories link and all the instruments are broken out there. So you could see all the interviews with bass players or guitarists or whatever. And I think the only, there's a couple other categories, all the interviews that I did several years ago at various editions of the Rochester International Jazz Festival are grouped accordingly. Uh, so are the interviews from the last couple of years of the Tanglewood Jazz Fest. And so are all the interviews that deal with musicians from New Orleans. Uh, they're all grouped in a category. What else do I want to tell you? I'll tell you there's a mailing list also at thejazzsession.com, and if you sign up for it, you will get one email a week on Monday morning that will tell you who's on the show that week and the following week, and uh, just give you some other interesting links uh, to sometimes to articles that I've written or just other interesting jazz things that you might enjoy. There's also a Facebook group if you go to, uh, well, obviously, facebook.com, and if you type in The Jazz Session in uh, Facebook search box, it'll take you to the group and you can join. And you'll get the same one email, so it's probably not worth it to be on both, but it is worth it to be on one or the other, I think. I also give away CDs uh, using both those methods, but I, again, I do them uh, identically, so uh, if you don't want to get two emails a week, you can just sign up for one or the other. Thanks so much to the Respect Sextet, uh, who, if you have a time machine, are performing tonight, but you won't hear this interview till tomorrow, uh, at the Cafe Vivaldi. They're also performing, however, if you have just a regular machine of some sort that would get you to this place. They're performing at uh, Le Poisson Rouge in New York on January 11th, and uh, they have a very special opening guest as well. And I don't know if it's public who that person is, so I'm not going to say, but trust me, it's cool. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. And if he were ever to choose to do stand-up, would be worth seeing, too, because he's one of the funniest human beings I've ever spoken to. That's about it, kids. Thank you so much to you for being here, and uh, it's just such a pleasure having you here listening to the show. I'm so glad you were here, and I hope you'll come back. Well, before actually, before you come back here, I hope that you will go out into the world and support live jazz wherever and whenever you can. I hope that you will buy me a space here, and I hope that you will come back here for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.